Thank you for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Is this new Service Ontario kiosk model really going to save us money? We're also talking about LRT, PA days, foreign interference, Chevy Chase, and Buffalo's airport. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As you've probably heard, Ontario is set to open six Service Ontario locations inside Staples stores. In fact, it's going to start this coming Thursday. So we're just a couple of days away from these first kiosks, if you will, for Service Ontario being installed in Staples stores. Yesterday, we heard from Public and Business Service Delivery Minister Todd McCarthy, who says having Service Ontario locations inside stores isn't anything new. It is only new to Staples Canada. The retail partnership model has, in fact, been tried, tested, and very well received by Ontarians. For the past 15 years, Service Ontario has worked with Canadian Tire, IDA, and Home Hardware, Home Hardware as retail partners. First six new service centres that are going to open inside Staples are in Oakville, Newmarket, Toronto, Strathroy, Tilsonburg, and Welland. So a few you know, near us, Welland, Oakville probably being the closest. Hamilton is on the list to get one this year. A time frame hasn't been officially installed, but we know where it's going to go. 2130 Rymel Road East, which is on the Stony Creek Mountain. This is where the Canadian Tire, uh, the Walmart, the Winners, big box stores are located up on the Stony Creek Mountain. That's where this Service Ontario kiosk inside the Staples, there's currently a Staples store there, is going to be located. The question that many people are at, well, there's a lot of questions, but one question many people are asking is, is this a positive step forward? Is this going to be better for you and I when it comes to renewing licenses, for getting things that we need when it comes to our documents? Now, McCarthy says that the locations are going to offer more convenience with extended hours on evenings and on Saturdays. And we've all been into a Service Ontario building. You go in and you wait in line forever, whether it's to renew your driver's license or your health card or get your license plate sticker. And we used to do a bunch of that. There was always be a lineup and you would have three or four or five or six or more people at the counter assisting customers. It sounds like a kiosk in a staple store is not going to have three or four or five or six employees helping you and I. Here's the other question, too. Is it going to save us some money? Because Premier Doug Ford had said that this move is going to save taxpayers a million dollars. You heard that. Then the province said, yeah, you know what? The savings is going to be a million dollars, but that's over three years. Well, yesterday we learned that the estimated savings, this again from the minister, will total $900,000 over three years. And most of that is going to be tied to not paying uh, the lease for these standalone locations, right? If you're moving from a, a big storefront into a tiny little kiosk tucked away in the corner at Staples, obviously your overhead is going to be drastically reduced. So is that the $900,000 over three years? And we also learned that Staples is going to receive $1.75 million to make retrofits, retrofits uh, pardon me, to their locations. 
So is that before or after the estimated savings of $900,000 over three years? Because that might have just wiped out those savings. So where are the cost savings here? And why wasn't this process opened up to other stores in a competitive bidding process? You heard from the minister, you know, they're already at Canadian Tire and IDA and home hardware stores. And now they're going into staple stores and some Walmart stores are going to have these too. Why didn't the province say, hey, this is what we're doing. Come to the table with your best offer. Isn't that how it should work? Let's see the paper trail because I want to know, and I'm sure you want to know, is there an inside deal here? Whose palms are getting greased? How are my taxpayers or tax dollars being spent? And will the service be better? I want to know that too. And what happens when the contracts of, it's like 134 other privately operated service Ontario locations expire? What happens then? Are we going to have just kiosks only? Is this going to be a better system? I'll tell you one thing, the folks at this hour has 22 minutes had a lot of fun with this. Get a load of this. The Ontario government is setting up Service Ontario kiosks in Walmart and Staples. So taxpayers will have to go to box stores to renew a driver's license or a health card. And now you can do all your government stuff at Tim Hortons too. Hi, can I get a double-double, a box of Timbits, and I have to pay these parking tickets? That'll be $262. Get a coffee while you get a marriage certificate, a birth certificate, or a death certificate. And we're taking on some Ontario health stuff, too. I'm here for some blood work. Oh, it's our roll up your sleeve to bleed event. Win a coffee, a muffin, or a free moose license. Here's your coffee. And here's my urine sample. But don't worry, we're still always fresh. Excuse me, my coffee's cold. Oh. Tim Horton Service Ontario Kiosk. Finally, an idea as bad as the coffee. It is a much-watch. Check out uh, This Hour's 22 Minutes on YouTube. Great video and a great spoof on what is happening in Ontario with your tax dollars. Can't wait for more of these kiosks to open and us lining up throughout Staples Store and maybe picking up a pen or two. There's the win for Staples. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about Hamilton's favorite acronym, LRT. It's the focus of our poll question of the day on X at AM 900 CHML. Should Hamilton's LRT system be operated by the local transit union, or in this case, actually HSR, or a private company? Publicly or privately run? That's the debate being had at Hamilton City Hall. We're... Copying that for a poll question of the day, 72% saying run it publicly, run it locally. 28% say, ah, let's go the private route. Private route's the way to go. Have your say on X at AM900CHML. Send me a text, 905-645-3221, or on email, rick at 900CHML.com. Got a note on X from Dr. T. This says, things might change by 2045 once it is complete. So who knows what will happen from now till then. I see what you did there, Dr. T. I see what you did. Uh, There's a Toronto councillor that spoke to Hamilton Council yesterday, Josh Matlow, weighing in on Hamilton's ongoing LRT planning, and he had a warning for the city of Hamilton. From our experience, as attractive as potential cost savings might be, I would ask you to consider the long-term cost of sacrificing your ability to provide direct oversight and demand accountability 
for the residents you serve. So basically, this Toronto councillor saying and warning Hamilton councillors that contracting out LRT operations would be a huge mistake. Well, let's ask one of the councillors here in Hamilton. John Poldenko is the councillor for Board 8 and joins us on GMH on 900 CHML. JP, good morning. Good morning, Rick. First off, is it abnormal to hear from a councillor from another city on an issue that is being waged here locally? Uh, it's the first time uh, that I'm aware that it's happened. Um, it's, a, it's definitely a little unusual, uh, but it is an important question for the city of Hamilton. And I think what we need to focus this discussion on is that Metrolinx is our partner. We are building LRT with Metrolinx. It is their project. They're building it. They, the province owns it. But um, it's not an ideological discussion about whether it should be union-run or should be private or P3s are good or bad. What we're looking at as a council is what is in the best interest of taxpayers to deliver the best rapid transit project for the city of Hamilton that we possibly can. And certainly going into that discussion is... How can we avoid some of the issues that places like Ottawa have been enduring? And how can we have this system at the lowest cost possible for the taxpayer? And that doesn't always go hand in hand. Best value for taxpayer, I'd say, rather than cost. Um, Of course, we want it to be cost effective, but we also want a really good service. And when we look across uh, the province of Ontario, and staff did a very good uh, in-depth expert review that was peer-reviewed by independent experts, um, people that actually have experience running and operating, maintaining rapid transit systems, their recommendation that it be a fully private operation, fully private maintenance, the same company that builds uh, the system, then maintains and operates it. And I think there's some pretty clear benefits to that because if you have the same uh, company that is responsible for building it, they're going to build it to really good quality standards because they're also going to be responsible for the long-term maintenance and the long-term maintenance is also has a direct impact on operations. So if we look at uh, systems where, you know, we should learn some lessons, I would hope, uh, Ottawa, uh, the Confederation line, the Eglinton Crosstown LRT, the delays, uh, that that Councillor Matlow warned us about, those are systems that have public operation of those uh, lines. And I think that's exactly what we need to avoid here in Hamilton. So the ultimate decision on, on which way to go has been delayed uh, by Council. Do you get the sense that Council is leaning towards one way as opposed to the other? I'm not sure, because obviously there is, uh, we want to support our, our Amalgamated, amalgamated transit union partners. Uh, they operate HSR. They're a valued uh, workers in this city. Uh, they do great work for us, but we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars expanding the HSR network across the city. So there is lots of work for, uh, for ATU workers going forward, and it is all tied to LRT being the spine of that network. Um, so whether they operate or they're involved with LRT or, or not, there's still, you know, a huge involvement for ATU. Ultimately, uh, the decision is up to Metrolinx. I'm not sure where Council's going to go. But again, I think it comes back to this idea that Metrolinx is our partner in this, that they are not, you know, they're not the bad guys. They're not the enemy. They're our partner. We need to work together with them and the province to deliver the best rapid transit solution for the city of Hamilton. As you mentioned, Metrolinx is going to have the ultimate hammer in this decision. Does it really matter what council decides? 
Well, I think it does matter because if we go back, uh, you know, to 2016, 2017, this discussion about oh, who is going to operate uh, LRT is the reason why we don't have a functioning operational LRT right now. So I think we need to learn from those mistakes and, uh, again, you know, work with Metrolinx, work with the province and, uh, you know, make a decision that is in the response, the best responsibility, the best project for taxpayers and, you know, put aside some of those ideological differences. And and why 10 years? I know the, the initial recommendation from staff is let's do this privately for 10 years and then see where we're at. What are your thoughts on that? Well, from staff's uh, review, and again, you know, experts that have actual experience in, in rapid transit projects, uh, they felt that 10 years would be a good length of time to gather data of how much it costs to actually operate those systems, um, you know, what the problems are, you know, if there's issues with operations, and then we would be able to make a much more informed decision at that point, whether we want to maintain uh, private operation or to, uh, to make it public. And I just want to emphasize that at this point, we're strictly talking about the day-to-day operations. That's who shovels the snow, who picks up the trash, uh, that kind of thing. The maintenance, the, the life cycle maintenance is always going to be a, a Metrolinx that's a private uh, uh, entity that's doing that. We're strictly talking about operations. Good to know. That decision is expected to be made March the 20th. Uh, John Poldenko, uh, thanks for the time. Good luck with that decision coming up. Thanks so much, Rick. Councillor John Poldenko is a representative for Ward 8 here in the city, and it is a rather big decision that they're going to make. Either go the private route, like what is being done in places like Waterloo, and it's worked remarkably well, but that's also how it's going down in Toronto, and it's in some cases not working well at all. Um, you'll know this, that uh, when the decision is made, we'll have uh, that breaking news for you here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, several school boards are adjusting their PA days due to the total solar eclipse coming up on April the 8th. And the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, the local public board, is now following suit. The potential risks include a darkening of the sky, reducing visibility, as well as potential damage to eyesight if one were to view the eclipse directly. That is Superintendent Simon Goodacre. Joining us now from the local public board is Board Chair Maria Felix Miller. Maria, welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's nice to be back. So the board is moving a PA day to April the 8th because of the total solar eclipse. Was this a, was this a lively discussion? Take us into the boardroom. Uh, no, it wasn't at all, actually. Uh, <laughs> was there <it> were no... <laughs> to the point where I actually almost was surprised that oh. there was not more of a lively conversation. I think the the facts were, were just really clear to trustees. Uh, staff had uh, given us, you know, multiple reassurances that the PA day could be moved without any um, big complication. Uh, the ministry had already let us know because other uh, boards have already uh, taken this action, they had let us know that they would not be um, they wouldn't be posing any obstacles if we did did decide to go that route. From a safety component, we know that looking at the total solar eclipse can be damaging to the eyes, especially when it's not quite the total eclipse. Even one percent of the sun can damage your retina. Was that just a slam dunk decision? Listen, we got to keep our kids safe. 
Absolutely. It was uh, specifically around because of the time um, that it's happening. So it's it's in between two and four when you, you do have those um, sort of exacerbated da- dangers. And we know that that's exactly the time when um, many of our students are getting onto buses. Many parents are coming into a schoolyard to pick up kids. Um, if it had happened sort of throughout a different time of the day, uh, we could have ensured some safety measures within the buildings, um, you know, something like an indoor recess, uh, something like a, a very supervised, you know, safe uh, watching of the eclipse with uh, a viewfinder, an appropriate tool uh, to safely view it. Um, but it happening between the hours of two and four is really the key component here. Was early dismissal an option or is that just opening up a can of worms? That gets tricky, right? Because uh, parents then have to uh, find potentially alternative um, pickup uh, arrangements. Um, Busing gets more complicated depending on what the coterminous board uh, decides to do. I don't believe that they've made their decision yet, uh, but I know that they have board meetings typically on the the Tuesday. They're always a bit uh, a day after us. So uh, we'll see what they do. We have had open lines of communication with them in terms of our intentions. Um, and now uh, parents and community members can find all that information on our website. Uh, communication will be going directly out to parents today via email. And then there will be reminders both ahead of the March, uh, the former PA day date. Um, and then we will remind parents again in April uh, about the switch. So we we plan to be very um, proactive in our communication just to remind folks that there has been a change. But yes, safety was number one concern. And we're, we're happy that we can kind of go forward um, and just make the appropriate plans. Do you know, is the local Catholic board doing the same? Uh, we've shared our intentions. I don't know. Uh, they haven't said anything officially yet. And as I shared, uh, they may they may still be reviewing that because I know that they would likely have a board meeting tonight. Right. Maria Felix Miller is the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML chatting about uh, moving a PA day to April the 8th, which is total solar eclipse day in uh, the Hamilton area. And Hamilton's going to be one of the prime viewing spots on the planet for this eclipse. That when we initially uh, spoke about this on the show a week or so ago, whatever it was, a lot of people were <laughs> complaining, saying this is a teachable moment. Kids should be in school learning about the eclipse. Uh, was that a discussion item? Uh, not at board, but of course, any any um, scientific uh, event is a teachable moment. Um, you know, I'm sure that teachers leading up to the day will be discussing it in class. And like I said, if it had happened at any other point in the day, we could have taken the appropriate safety measures for that to keep students safe while also talking about it. It really just is that it is, you know, during the time of dismissal and it's during a time where we can't ensure that kids are being the most safe. Um, So that's just a situation we don't want to put our students or staff or our parents or caregivers um, in. Makes sense. Chair uh, Miller, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much. And I love the song choice, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll, we'll play it until we can't play it no more. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks Have a lovely time. day. Thanks for having me. You too. That is uh, Maria Felix Miller, the chair of the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The inquiry looking into foreign interference in Canada is now underway. It began yesterday. And one of the main challenges is stick handling through top secret documents. We are dealing with foreign intelligence agencies that if there is a way to extract every drop of value from any piece of information that comes out of this commission, they have 
uh, that ability because of their the sophistication of their intelligence apparatus. That's the voice of Gordon Cameron, one of the commission's lawyers, talking about that challenge. What else happened on day one and what is to come with this inquiry? David Aiken is our chief political correspondent for Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. Good. So let's get into the top secret stuff because there is apparently a lot of it. There is. In fact, the, one of the last things that Gordon Cameron, the commission counsel, said to the inquiry yesterday was he presented this stat. Cameron was also the commission counsel for the Emergencies Act inquiry, the Public Emergency Order Commission that looked into the invocation of the Emergencies Act to deal with the Freedom Convoy. So he said, you know, that inquiry about the Emergencies Act involved a lot of secret stuff, cabinet confidences, you know, uh, memos between cabinet ministers, all secret stuff. But he said, of all the exhibits tabled at the Emergencies Act, just 0.5% were classified top secret. And then he said, you want to know how much, uh, how many of the exhibits at this inquiry into foreign interference are top secret? 80%. 0.5% at the Emergencies Act, 80% are top secret. And the whole point of having this particular inquiry from the opposition parties who all demanded it, from many uh, other groups and organizations, including global news and media organizations, was to put some of this information about foreign interference on the public record. And yet 80% of the stuff is classified top secret. And so uh, this week, and yesterday was day one of these uh, public hearings, this week is essentially... You know, we're not going to hear any witnesses or evidence. We're going to talk about how on earth are we going to get around this issue that we have information that's top secret. If it gets out, it could literally put people in harm's way, you know, spies overseas, etc. It could put people in this country who are targets of foreign interference in harm's way. So how do we put this stuff on the record and yet still protect national security, still protect the security of persons? It's going to be a very tricky problem, and we're going to get to it this morning when we hear round two from some top national security lawyers who have some strategies about that. Not to toot our own horn, but a lot of what it's going to be discussed at this inquiry uh, was uncovered by global news reporting. That's right, and uh, and that is something that the commission, the commissioner herself, uh, her name is uh, Justice uh, Marie Jose Og. She's a, a member of the uh, Quebec Superior Court. She noted that in her opening remarks. Uh, that this is really on the agenda because of reporting by Global, by some other news organizations. Our friends at the Globe and Mail have done some great work on this. Um, and a lot of that, I mean, we, we, can't, we I can't, and I know we can't get into too much of our sources because a lot of the sources for our reporting spoke to us on condition we would not identify them. But a lot of this is coming from uh, what I would broadly call the, the Canadian intelligence community who seem to be, you know, I don't want to ascribe motives, uh, and I haven't talked to some of these folks, as other colleagues are doing this, but they seem to be a bit frustrated that perhaps their concerns about foreign interference over the years had not been seriously addressed by our legislatures. Um, and so one of the reasons, again, for this inquiry is to put some facts on the record, but then also make some recommendations about what can the federal government do? What can the provincial governments do? What can municipal governments do to guard against foreign interference?
The Foreign Interference Inquiry is on now in Ottawa. That's where we find David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, as you tune in to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. There's also a new case involving a Chinese woman who was recently deported. What can you tell us? That's right. And so, again, the two at our own horn. Here's on the day this inquiry opens up, our colleague Stuart Bell, who's been on top of the national security file for many years, has broken lots of stories. He got a scoop yesterday um, in which he uncovered some documents that show that the Canadian government had won a deportation order against a Chinese national, a woman in the Vancouver area, who uh, Canadian border officials had concluded was involved in espionage on behalf of the Chinese government here in Canada. And that espionage basically involved uh, pressuring and trying to silence the dissent of uh, members of the Chinese-Canadian diaspora, people who may have been born in Hong Kong or born in mainland China, but now live here in Canada. Uh, This has been an issue that um, our friend Stu Bell and other reporters for Global and elsewhere have documented, that the Chinese government, this is one of the ways they interfere with our politics. They try to put pressure on um, people who have... um, Chinese background here in Canada. The case of the MP Michael Chong, that's a classic case. He has family members in China. Michael is is part Chinese, part Dutch, and he's got family members back in China that he has purposely essentially severed all contact with since he became a parliamentarian for their safety, because he knows that the pro-democracy work he's doing, the pro-Uyghur work that Michael Chong is doing, um, you know, the Chinese have said, you know, we're going to find your family and maybe put some pressure on them. So this is this is this case yesterday that Stu Bell uncovered. That is exactly the sort of thing that this foreign interference inquiry wants to describe, explain, put on the record. Again, um, some of it is top secret, and that will be the challenge to get as many details out without jeopardizing national security. Looking forward to how this unfolds, and uh, Mr. Aiken will be on the front line at this inquiry. David, appreciate the time today. Hey, no problem. Have a great morning. You too. David Aiken is the chief political correspondent for Global News. What a statistic in relation to the top secret documents. 0.5% of the top secret documents during the Emergencies Act inquiry. Less than a percent. Half a percent. 80% of the documents, 80% of the exhibits at this foreign interference inquiry are labeled top secret. That is going to be tough to stick in. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What a coup for the Niagara Falls Comic Con. It has landed a major celebrity. I don't want to spoil it, but this individual is going to be attending for the first time in Canada. I'll let our guest make the uh, announcement. Chris Dabrowski is the owner of the Hamilton and Niagara Falls Comic Cons and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm very well. All right. So the major celebrity that you have landed is... Chevy Chase, a.k.a. Clark Griswold. We are stoked. It's been years in the making, and uh, we're proud to call... Hamilton and Ontario and Niagara Falls home to his first ever Canadian appearance this June 7th, 8th and 9th. You said this is years in the making. How did you eventually crack the nut here? It was just, uh, it was persistence. We we continued to reach out to his talent agents and his management team and and continued to invite him year after year after year. And finally, in 2024, 
he has said yes, and he'll be making his way down this June. And uh, we believe Beverly D'Angelo will uh, will also be joining him at his first ever Canadian appearance. And I, I believe she has roots to uh, Hamilton, Ontario as well, Beverly D'Angelo. So exciting on all fronts. It's going to be a great reunion. Uh, what, what kind of convincing does it take for a major celebrity like that to say, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do it? I'm, I'm sure Chevy's really busy. Yeah, we're we're really lucky in the fact that our backyard where we host our convention is in Niagara Falls, Canada. It's one of the top-rated destinations to visit in the world. Um, and I think a lot of the contributing factor into him saying yes was due to the fact that he wanted to visit Niagara Falls. He was at an appearance in Pennsylvania not too long ago, and he had posted on his TikTok that he was in Niagara Falls, New York, and, and uh, kind of made mention of it and, and spent some time down there at the near the brink of the falls. I think it was kind of in the back of his mind, and our uh, latest invitation came out uh, and went to him at, at exactly the right time. So a lot of it had to do with timing, and a lot of it has to do with the destination where we host Comic-Con as well. Comic-Con is always bringing in a lot of people during the weekend. And by the way, this weekend, it's going to be June 7th to 9th this summer at the Niagara Falls Convention Center. And you can get your tickets already, nfcomiccon.com. How many more people do you think are going to come out knowing that Chevy Chase is going to be there? Being his first ever Canadian appearance, he was scheduled to be in Toronto last year. He uh, he came down with pneumonia and actually had to cancel. So due to the fact that uh, it's his first ever Canadian appearance, we're, we're a border town, we're, we're close to major cities in the United States as well, like Cleveland, Rochester, Pittsburgh. He hasn't appeared anywhere near here. So if you're looking to meet Chevy Chase, if uh, I think... You know, unless you've been living under a rock for the past 35 years, you, you probably watch Christmas Vacation. It's a movie that's beloved. It's near and dear to a lot of families' hearts. I know in our, our household, we make a, a point to at least watch it 10 times a year during the holidays. So if, if you're from anywhere near Ontario, I know we've had people mention already on our Facebook page that they booked their flights from Australia. Wow. Um, but if you're in Canada, this, this is the time to meet Chevy Chase. Um, it's a rare opportunity. So we expect hundreds, probably over a thousand people just specifically to come out to meet Chevy Chase specifically. So it's, uh, we're, we're ready for it. The lineups are already long at Niagara Falls Comic Con. Um, our lineup doesn't stop at Chevy Chase in terms of celebrities. So it's, I think it's, it's going to be one of our biggest years yet. I do want to get to one other individual in particular that caught my attention after I went on the website nfcomiccon.com to see what other celebrities are going to come out. You can get your tickets online right now, nfcomiccon.com, June 7th to 9th, Niagara Falls Convention Center. I know it's a ways away, but boy, oh boy, knowing that Chevy Chase is going to be there, you might want to get your tickets right now. Chris Dabrowski is the owner of uh, the Niagara Falls and Hamilton Comic Con, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The other name that caught my attention this morning Ivan Drago himself, Dolph Lundgren, is going to be making his first Canadian appearance. His first Canadian appearance as well. Uh, the Rocky franchise, it's enormous. It's, it's one of the most watched movies, uh, franchises, anthologies of all time. And uh, if you've watched Rocky before, you know, in my opinion, Rocky IV um, is one of the best in the franchise. And, and Ivan Drago, his character, bar none, one of the, the most beloved, I think. One of the most hated, yep. but at the same time as years pass. Um, it's nostalgic. It's very collectible. It doesn't stop at Rocky. He, he's been in a, a ton of different movies and TV shows, and he's a Hollywood legend as well. So to have those two under the same roof is, is quite impressive for us at, at Comic-Con here in Niagara Falls. We welcome names like David Hasselhoff, William Shatner, 
um, Adam West, the list goes on. But when, when it comes to top-tier Hollywood legends, um, Dolph Lundgren, Ivan Drago, and, and Chevy Chase definitely take the cake, I think. Absolutely. The cosplay crowd, I have noticed, and, and these are people who attend Comic-Cons dressed up as their favorite character, be it uh, comic books or movies, that has really ballooned over the years, hasn't it? It has. Uh, when you go to Comic-Con, there, there's different segments and areas. I call them kind of departments um, that fans kind of are attracted to. Some of them are the celebrities and the autographs and the photo ops. Some of them are the exhibitors. And then we have the casual fans and families that come out to Comic-Con. But cosplay is a, a big part of why fans come out. They, they spend weeks and months and years in creating their costumes. And they only have a few opportunities throughout the year to, to show off their creations. And Comic-Con's one of those communities where they can come out, they can dress up, they can cosplay. Some of the costumes are, are just absolutely phenomenal um, to see the, the amount of work and the time that goes into these creations and, and the, the artistry that goes into it. Um, two people that we have flying in from, from uh, the United States are the real-life Peter Griffin. So if you're a, a fan of Family Guy, you'll, you'll know who Peter Griffin is. Yeah. And Lois, and they're... I mean, their costumes are, are spot on, but the uh, the impressions and the mannerisms that come out of the real-life Peter Griffin and Lois are, are hilarious. But uh, cosplay, if you've never been to a Comic-Con before, I definitely suggest you come out and check it out. And cosplay is one of those things that just turns heads all weekend long, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's just fun to, to watch people get together within their communities and, and have fun doing what they love to do. It is a ton of fun, and you can be there as well. The Niagara Falls Comic Con. Get your tickets now, nfcomiccon.com. Chris, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and uh, have a great day. Rick, thank you. That is Chris Dabrowski, the owner of the Niagara Falls and Hamilton Comic Con. By the way, Hamilton Comic Con coming to the Hamilton Convention Center September 21 to 22. That is always a lot of fun. The Niagara Falls edition going June 7th to 9th at the Niagara Falls Convention Center. And yeah, that cosplay, there's all, there's a cosplay contest. I mean, there's just hordes of people dressing up. It's like Halloween in June or whenever the Comic-Con is being held. It's a lot of fun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting statistics here. 35% of passengers at Buffalo's airport are Canadian travelers. And more than a million Canadians are expected to fly out of Buffalo this year. All of this is encapsulated in a new survey that shows residents from Hamilton and Niagara say potential cost savings and reduced travel time are enticing them to use the Buffalo-Niagara International Airport. Speaking of which, from that airport, Pascal Cohen is a senior marketing manager at Buffalo's airport and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Pascal, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. What is your biggest takeaway from the survey results? Did anything surprise you? Yeah, no, honestly, nothing really surprising in there. We've been a binational airport for a long time. As you know, in this region, uh, folks cross over the border uh, both directions all the time. So Canadians have been a very key segment of our airport for a very long time. But it's good to to have a survey confirm that once again. When it comes to cost savings, is it more often than not cheaper to fly to Buffalo? It is, and it's really for several reasons. Um, one, a domestic flight is cheaper because when you drive across the border, you don't pay for the privilege to cross the border, right? But when you fly, you actually pay for that. That cost is added to your ticket. So it's not just Canadian costs, it's also U.S. customs and immigration costs. So driving across the border is just cheaper, typically about 
$70 or so cheaper just for fees and taxes. And and is this price comparison comparing Buffalo to Toronto or is Hamilton baked in there as well? It's really any Canadian fare. If it's, if it's trans-border, so if you fly trans-border, you pay for those fees and taxes. Mm-hmm. That is just, you know, both um, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, Customs and Immigration and then returning back into Canada, um, the Canadian border uh, services charges that too. So regardless of what the ticket prices that the airline makes, those fees are added on top of it. So it's, it's hard to compare because you may have like a, a discount airline that's trying to really, really be super cheap. So the ticket may look uh, not that this this different, but the bottom line is you pay just um, far fewer taxes and fees. The other so that's one side, and then the other side is obviously we have low cost carriers that don't operate in Canada at all. So we're talking about Southwest and JetBlue and Frontier uh, and Allegiant Airlines that just don't operate in Canada at all. So uh, they they only operate within the U.S. Um, they operate to Caribbean and stuff like that too, but. It's really, um, they don't fly into southern Ontario at all. Yeah, there's clearly more options in that regard as well. The the, also, the other, you know, big spoke in this survey is the reduced travel time. How much quicker is it getting through Buffalo's airport compared to, say, Pearson International in Toronto? Yeah, and this, and, and folks on the Hamilton area, they know this. Uh, obviously, to drive to Toronto, Pearson takes a while because of how busy the, the roads are down there, right? I've done it many times myself. It takes forever, even even though it may only be 20 miles, it could easily take you 45 minutes to an hour to, to drive it, especially in the morning. But once you arrive at the Toronto Pearson Airport, which is such a big behemoth, it takes a while to get from the parking lot to, to the terminal itself. Then you have to clear uh, CATSA, right? But after that, you have to clear into Customs and Immigration pre-clearance. So you have to then cross into the US with the pre-clearance facility. So even if you look at the Pearson Airport, it says it takes about three hours. They want you to arrive at the airport three hours before your flight to the U.S. Well, obviously, if you drive to the Buffalo Airport to cross the border, it's it's a you know minimal amount of time. Plus, you cross you know with your whole vehicle all at once. Uh, you don't have to fill out forms that says you know are you taking ten thousand dollars in cash, those kind of things. And then obviously, most folks that I know have Nexus, so that makes it even faster. So. It is actually faster to get to the Buffalo Airport, especially if you live in the Hamilton area. Um, especially if you go in the morning, you drive away from the traffic that goes to, to Toronto. You cross the border. Um, you know we're only you know about eight miles or so east of of um, um, the border down here at the end of the QEW, and um, uh, from the terminal to your gate including your checkpoint experience is typically 12 minutes or less. Wow, that's pretty fantastic. We've got about a minute. I want to ask you about uh, travel levels or travel numbers. Is the Buffalo Airport back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, we've had two months uh, in the fall where we were actually exceeding 2019 when you're preparing the exact same week. Uh, Right now, we're back to uh, about 95%. So we're almost there. But uh, the good news is in um, in. April, we're going to get nonstop service on Southwest to Nashville. And uh, over the summer, we are increasing the Southwest flights daily to Phoenix. So there is no doubt in my mind that by late spring, we will be exceeding 2019 numbers again. Wow, that is good to hear. Pascal, thanks for the time today. Good luck going forward. Thank you so much. Pascal Cohen is a senior marketing manager with the Buffalo Niagara International Airport. I will say this, using Hamilton's airport as well, easy to get in and out of 
Obviously, you don't have uh, as many options as maybe the Buffalo Airport would, but it's certainly a great option as well in comparison to Pearson. That is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.